0: Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best's Directory of
1: Recommended Insurance Attorneys.
0: Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today Charles Haddock, C.J. Jr., and Bob Marino from the law firm of Dickie McCamey & Shilko, P.C., The firm has offices in Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and in Washington, D.C., Delaware, New Jersey, North Carolina, Ohio, and West Virginia. C.J. Haddock is a shareholder of the firm and practices in the areas of insurance and insurance bad faith litigation. He is also a member of DRI and a frequent author and lecturer. Rob Marino is a shareholder of the firm and serves as chairman of the firm's insurance law and litigation practice group. He served as an elected member of their executive committee for over 12 years and is a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers. The firm is also one of our longest tenured listing firms going back to 1929, so we're extremely pleased to have both attorneys with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Today's topic is on bad faith issues in the insurance industry, and Brendan Noonan will lead off with today's first question. Uh, C.J., what is the biggest misconception about bad faith cases?
1: I think, uh, Brendan, uh, the biggest one that we found is the notion that insurers somehow have to subvert, subvert their own interests to the interests of, uh, of their insureds. Um, the playing field has to be level, but there's no requirement that the insurer has to accommodate its interests any less than, than that of the, in, the, the insured. The truth of the matter is the cases continue to say that if it's carried out in a reasonable way, insurers have the right to disagree with their insureds on claims and, have, and they have a right to their own opinion on the values of claims, even if that opinion is different from their insured's opinion, and there's no crime in that.
0: Now, C.J., from a national perspective, what are some of the most recent bad faith opinions from around the country said, and is there a common theme running throughout them?
1: That's a good question. The bad faith law does tend to differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but only in a matter of a degree. I think we'd say that uh, to the extent that you can sort of glean one uniform rule from the cases across the country, The reasonableness of thought process and the reasonableness of the insurance company's conduct is still the coin of the realm in terms of successful bad faith avoidance. Uh, Reasonableness is always the touchstone, even though it may be expressed differently in different jurisdictions. In our survey of cases, we've seen that, for example, an insurer who obtains medical authorizations to get medical records but fails to use the authorization, causing delay in a claim, can be liable for bad faith. On the other side, Courts have also held that there could be no bad faith finding against an insurer for an unreasonable delay where the insured himself was responsible for providing incomplete records or records in a piecemeal or slow fashion. And so the conduct of both parties is examined in the majority, if not all, jurisdictions. Reasonableness, uh, I think we've learned, is sort of a close cousin of common sense. And uh, I would say, and I hope Rob would agree, that uh, in 70 to 80 percent of the cases, the the name of the game is simply common sense and with the other 20 to 30% being good bad faith education to claim staff so they can learn where the outliers are in terms of bad faith decisions and any unique jurisdictional quirks that they may have to operate under.
0: Okay, and Rob, from your experience, uh, what are some of the more prevalent types of bad faith occurrences?
1: Yes, from
2: our experience defending these cases, we found that the most serious types of bad faith occurrences and resultant exposures to insurance carriers are as follows first would be failing to respond promptly to settlement demands, particularly time limit demands, thus exposing the insured to owners and excess third-party liability. When a settlement demand letter is sent to an insurance carrier and it has a strict time limit contained in it, it is imperative that the carrier respond to that time limit demand letter in writing, either indicating first that insufficient investigation exists or is available, in order to prepare a proper response to the demand and or additional time is needed to gather relevant investigation evidence and documentation with specifics of what is needed included in the letter or in a case of clear liability with serious exposure and low limits of liability for the insured simply accept the demand and settle the case. We've had situations where Carriers have received time limit demands letters and due to some breakdown in the, in the claim process, just simply don't, they ignore the, the letter. And when the period of time expires and they then attempt to settle the case, the plaintiff's attorney points to the fact that the letter contained a specific time limit demand. The letter was not responded to and any further attempts to offer the policy limits are rejected. And in some cases, there's huge verdicts where the courts then Can use the letter as a basis to impose extra contractual liability. Second would be denying or contesting an insured's third-party liability, really without any objective basis, in fact, or law for doing so, thus exposing the insured to personal liability in excess of policy limits. And what typically happens there is when you have an excess verdict, the insured's personal counsel enters into an arrangement with the plaintiff's attorney to get a full and final release for his client and then assign his client the insured's bad faith claim to the plaintiff in exchange for that release. And then the plaintiff now has a right to proceed directly against the insured's carrier for bad faith conduct. Third would be in an uninsured or underinsured motorist context for the personal lines carriers failing to follow the requirements of the insurance policy language as to the scope Timing and extent of things like examinations under oath, the methods of obtaining investigation, the forum for litigating the matter, mat, where, the, litigating the matter whether it's in arbitration or court, and things of that nature. And fourth is misinterpreting or ignoring language of the actual insurance policy in question when securing statements under oath, proofs of claim, etc. I guess finally would be failing to follow the insurance carrier's own policies, and claims manuals, and standard operating procedures.
3: Uh,
0: Rob, what can insurance companies do to be proactive?
2: Uh, There are several things that insurance carriers, whether they be personal lines or commercial carriers, can uh, can do to be proactive and avoid these types of exposures. First, the carrier can make sure it maintains prompt communication with all claimants and or their counsel. There's nothing worse than letters or telephone calls from a claimant, policyholder, or their counsel, which are in the claim file and have gone unanswered. Second, it's important for the carrier to document the claim's file in an objective manner without any editorializing or personal commentary as to important discussions with the claimant or the claimant's counsel. Third, the carrier and its claims professionals should at all times conduct themselves with courtesy. Civility and attentiveness. This is not a sign of weakness or giving up the claim and defenses to the claim. However, when disagreeing with a claimant or claimant's counsel, such disagreements can be and actually should be objectively based and calmly and rationally explained with respect to areas of disagreement. Fourth, the carrier would be wise to arrange for counsel of their choice to conduct periodic such as sem- semi-annual, for example, bad faith reviews and seminars to allow trained counsel to provide an overview of important developments in the law, both statutory and case law, which affect the carrier's business, their practices, and their potential of bad faith liability. Fifth, the carrier should make sure that all claims professionals are conversant with and follow all state insurance department or state insurance commissioner's regulations concerning the manner, in which these claims should be handled. And finally, sixth, the insurance carrier should make sure that its claims representatives and professionals are familiar with and trained on all of the company's relevant claims manuals and standard operating procedures. There's nothing worse than a claim professional being cross-examined on a claim manual requirement that he or she has disregarded, thus enabling a plaintiff's attorney in a bad faith lawsuit to then demonstrate to the fact finder, whether it be a judge or jury, that the company has simply disregarded its own stated and written policies.
0: Uh, C.J., how similar is bad faith law among the various states?
1: You know, I would say that based on my experience in uh, speaking and handling bad faith cases around the country, bad faith law from state to state does tend to honor the same basic concept, but deploys sometimes different language and methods to get there. Just this week, a case uh, from an appeals court in Alabama came across my desk, and there's a holding in the case that I think more or less you you would find it expressed in some form or another in most states that have uh, bad faith statutes or bad faith common law, and that is this. Bad faith is not simply bad judgment or negligence. It imports a dishonest purpose and means a breach of a known duty, i.e., good faith and fair dealing, through some motive or self-interest or ill will. When you think about that, that's a fairly high burden of proof for an insured To establish on the part of the insured or on on the part of the insurer rather some states as i said do it by statutes others have developed the principle through case law pennsylvania actually uh, has it expressed both ways there's a first party bad faith statute for example and then third party bad faith is generally an expression of case law but as i said the one overarching concept that is helpful for multi-jurisdictional insurers to remember is this an insurer must act reasonably when doing business and when dealing with its insureds in the claims arena. As we said earlier, insurers do not have to subvert their own interests to those of the insureds, but they must be a fair. Uh, they must make a fair and reasonable analysis and not subvert their insureds' interests either. It has to be a balanced playing field, as I said, and as, as Rob sort of suggested in going through some of the, the things he did. Insurers have to ask for the reasonable basis, so I'd say that's probably the common thread that runs through um, most, if not all, of the states which re- recognize insurance bad faith.
0: And Rob, why is this an important topic today?
2: Insurance bad faith and extra contractual liability exposure is an important topic because of two basic reasons. And the first is the obligation of insurance carriers simply to conduct themselves in a proper business manner and in accordance with the promises the carrier has made in its own contract or insurance policy with the insured. Second is the potential crippling liability that can be imposed in one form or another form or another in almost all jurisdictions in the United States for provable bad faith claims handling conduct by an insurance carrier. In almost all jurisdictions, this includes some type of imposition of interest at a higher statutory rate, attorney's fees to the plaintiff, contrary to the general American rule that each side is responsible for his or her own counsel fees, and most significantly, the imposition of punitive or extra contractual damages at Sometimes high multipliers of the compensatory damages, which can sometimes result in multi million dollar exposures. Now, the United States Supreme Court has placed limits on punitive damage exposures, and the indication from the U.S. Supreme Court decisions evaluating these verdicts from a due process standpoint has indicated that the multiplier, unless it's single digit, will not ordinarily be upheld. However, some carriers are interpreting that in situations where there's a very low compensatory claim. For example, a first-party property damage claim of three, $4,000 that, well, we can only be hit for nine times that amount in a punitive damage verdict. Uh, that's usually not going to fly if the conduct of the carrier is egregious. However, the fact of the matter is the vast majority of insurance carriers and claims professionals conduct themselves properly and in accordance with the law and regulations, otherwise they wouldn't be successful businesses. Furthermore, as C.J. just alluded to, the good news is that most states limit extra-contractual and bad-faith liability to those situations where the carrier's conduct truly is egregious and not based on simple negligence. Furthermore, such liability usually needs to be proven in in most jurisdictions by, other than a mere preponderance of the evidence, most courts have held that bad-faith conduct must be proven by clear and convincing evidence or some standard of proof other than the ordinary standard, which is the basis for imposing civil liability. However, it must be kept in mind that this is on a state-by-state basis, and there are some jurisdictions which might impose bad-faith liability on less than clear and convincing evidence.
0: Okay, Rob and CJ, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank yeah. you. That was Charles Haddock, C.J. Jr., and Rob Marino from the law firm of Dickey, McCamey, and Shilko, P.C., with offices in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C., Delaware, New Jersey, North Carolina, Ohio, and West Virginia. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for your future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message.